actually opened another chapter in human history in which he turned his attention to establishing a people for his own glory. The pagan nations were set aside at this time. Abraham and Sarah became, I'm going to call call them the new restart button. God broke the chain of sinful descendants in that Sarah was barren. And secondly, in that the promised seed, when her reproductive capacities were energized in later life, was not Isaac, but the Lord Jesus Christ, according to Galatians 3, verse 16. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. And so today's study zones in on God's promise to Abraham and Sarah and how they acted upon that promise. Let's give God the glory. Thank you, Father, for the ability to study your word. Show us something of your great power in selecting this couple in the Old Testament times and what you did with them. Marvelous, marvelous truths. Help us to see what you can do with us. We come by faith, trust you and your goodness. Bless those that have come today, those that are sick and ill. Think of Clara May. Pray, Lord, your blessing and your healing power. In Christ's name, amen. This couple acted on a promise, Abraham and Sarah. The communication of the promise is found in verse 1. The Lord had said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, your father's house. Notice how God builds things. Your country, your people, your household. It's like boom da boom da boom Start out with the broad, keep wearing it a little narrower, go a little more deeper. It's very, very personal. That's how God deals with people. Your father's household, go to the land that I will show you. Verse 4 states, So Abram left as the Lord had told him. How refreshing. Wow. What would compel a person to pull up stakes in his own hometown and head out for places unknown, dragging his wife and his nephew, Lot, with him to who knows where? Seemingly, this is about the most insane and irresponsible action anyone could take. Who in their right mind does something like this? What could Abram have been thinking? I mean, was he thinking? (laughs) What circumstances fell into place that gave Abram the resolve to do what appears to the onlooker as a very irrational act. I want you to put yourself in his sandals for a moment. And I ask this question, would you have responded in this way? Be honest. There's no history here. Abraham does not know the God of the Bible. He worships idols, creations of his own hands, God's 
passed down from his father, Terah, who was also an idol worshiper. Ah, ah, but there's a clue here. How do we know, or what, let me put it this way, what do we know about idols? We don't have to guess. David gives us this contrast. It's a marvelous text. David writes, our God is in the heavens. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Well, that's refreshing. But there, the nations, their idols are silver and gold, made by the hands of men. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they can't feel. Feet, but they cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. And those who make them will be like them. And will all who trust in them And so will all who trust in them. This is Psalm 115, verses 3 through 8. I read a text like that, and if there is one word we could use to label the activity of idols, it would be the word impotent. Impotent. Name any activity characteristic of someone alive and well, and the idols of the nations cannot do it. Not then, not now, not ever. David emphasizes this when after saying they have mouths but cannot speak, he adds the thought, nor can they utter a sound, a sound with their throats. That's not redundant. David is saying that the idols cannot converse in the language of men, but beyond that, they cannot even grunt out a sound of sorts like the beasts of the field who at least have a way of letting us know their presence. My cat, Zanna, he can't talk. But let me tell you, Every morning, I know he is alive and hungry as he sits outside the bedroom door and meows. And by the way, have you ever heard a Siamese meow? A Siamese cat does not say meow. They go, meow, meow. You know, it's like their whole insides are coming up. He's just a little squirt. He only weighs seven pounds. What's he out to? He's, he wants me to get out of bed and give him some food and water. Think then of Abram and Sarah, idolaters by practice, who all of their lives have ordered their religious allegiance around a carving of stone or a casting of metal. Impotent and immobile, as Isaiah writes, They lift it, the idol, they lift it to their shoulders and carry it. They set it up in its place and there it stands, 
From that spot, it cannot move. I'm reading scripture. From that spot, it cannot move. Though one cries out to it, it does not answer. It cannot save him from his troubles. Isaiah 46, verse 7. And Jeremiah adds, Who should not revere you, O king of the nations? This is your due. Among all the wise men of the nations and all their kingdoms, there's no one like you. They are all senseless and foolish. They are taught by worthless wooden idols. Hammered silver is brought from Tarshish, gold from Uphaz, and what the craftsmen and the goldsmith have made, and then dressed it with blue and purple, all made by skilled workers. But, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God, the eternal king. When he is angry, the earth trembles. The nations cannot endure his wrath. Tell me this, these gods who did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. But God made the earth by his power. He founded the world by his wisdom and stretched out the heavens by his understanding. And when he thunders, the waters in the heavens roar. He makes clouds rise from the ends of the earth. He sends lightning with the rain, brings out the wind from his storehouses, and everyone is senseless and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is shamed by his idols. His images are a fraud. They have no breath in them. They are worthless. The objects of mockery, when their judgment comes, they will perish. Jeremiah 10, verses 7 through 15. What a description of the idols. Now you might think that such idolatry, well, you know, we think that's for third world countries. <laughs> you know, that's for the Amazonians or the Aborigines from Australia or the Hindus from India or the Buddhists from China. Yeah, they're all idolaters. And we think, but we Americans, we Americans would never be so foolish as to bow down to a piece of wood or a casting of precious metal. I was talking to a brother the other day about the fact that America, the USA, does not seem to have any special mention in Scripture. It's almost as though the Holy Spirit has glossed over our very existence, except for maybe the description in the book of Revelation, which describes Babylon's worship, the very nation emerging from the ruins of the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. And it describes them in these terms, when the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her, terrified at her torment, They will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, O great city, O Babylon, city of power. In one hour, doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys, 
their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen, purple silk, scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and bodies and souls of men. Wow, what a description, huh? And they will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All of your riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her stand afar off, and they're terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Whoa, whoa, oh great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea, will stand far off. And when they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was this ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Whoa, whoa, oh great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Revelation 18, verses 9 and following. I say that may be. It certainly has parallels to the United States. Trillions of dollars are overseas from America as the merchants endeavor to protect their income and profits by investing in foreign lands. And America has its idols. America has abandoned its Christian roots. The number one terrorist threat listed on the Homeland Security Watch List, this will shock you, the number one terrorist threat listed on the Homeland Security Watch List is, and I quote, evangelical Christians. Did you know that there was a price on your head? Americans bow down to the dollars and wealth of the world. We have disowned the living God and opted for impotent idols. This was Abraham and this was Sarah centuries ago. Products of the Babel Tower and the idolatry fostered by its builders. But something stupendous happened. Something occurred which so shook Abraham to his core that he could not ignore it. What happened? Verse 1. The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your country. Go to a land that I will show you. In verse 4, So Abraham left as the Lord 
had told him. Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. Whoa, what is this? It is a God who talks. A God who talks. A God who speaks the language of men. A God who gives directions. A God who makes promises with no equivocation. A God that I do not carry around on my shoulder, but one who appears to me. A God who is alive and whose voice thunders out commands for me to obey and promises me blessings if I do obey. An alive God, an active God, a God who intervenes in the ordering of my life as though he knew me and claimed me for his own. Do you know how revolutionary this is? It had occurred once before when men had abandoned God for idols in the days before the flood. But Noah's flood taught his descendants nothing. They soon reverted to their idolatry and God was as silent as ever. Till Abram. Till Sarah. Once again God broke silence as he abandoned the nations to their superstition and their lies and reached down to two nobodies to make of them a nation of people who would listen to the God who speaks. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. Hebrews 1, verse 1 and 2. And again we are warned, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God. The living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, how much Less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. How much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Once more I will shake not only the earth, he says, but also the heavens. And the words once more indicate the removing 
of what can be shaken, that is, of created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, verse 22 and following. Do you know that no one in the day of judgment will be able to say, well, I didn't know. I didn't know. No one ever told me. You know, our God is the communicating God. He has laid out before us in the Bible his plan, his will, his expectations, his resolve. It's there. All you got to do is read it. The only ones who will be surprised are those who have turned a deaf ear to him. Jesus explained to the crowd of his day. Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he's going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of the light. And when he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. And even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of the Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so that they neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts, nor turn, nor turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because, I'm still reading scripture, Isaiah said this because he saw, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. John 12, verse 35 and following. In other words, God has spoken. He has spoken. But are we listening? He speaks, but the idols cannot. The idols of the nation cannot. Well, let me tell you, Abraham and Sarah listened. God spoke, and they said, wow, this is something new. This, the, these are not Tira's idols. This is not that little statue we have out there in the parlor. This is different. This God has spoken. Commanded us to do certain things. And that brings me to the second point of my sermon, which is the God's covenant with Abraham and Sarah. You know, promises are only as good as the person behind them. A father trying hard for some quality time with his family says to his children, you know, I know of late... Dad has been working very long hours, and I haven't had much time to spend with you, but I promise, <laughs> here it goes, 
I promise that this Saturday we will grab our fishing gear and we'll head out to Houghton Lake for a day of fun and fishing. But Friday night into Saturday, a large squall rolls into the area. The wind is blowing so hard that it's raining horizontally. You know what that's like. And it becomes obvious that the outing will have to be canceled. Dad's promise comes to a screeching halt. Why? Because while his intent is true and genuine, he cannot control the weather which, as it turned out, would have made it both foolish and dangerous if he pressed on to keep his promise. Brethren, this is the way it is with our promises. Because as human beings, we have no crystal ball to observe the future. And what is even more relevant, we have no power to change the future. We must bow to the many externals that enable or disable our participations in life. Health issues, money to afford things, cooperation of friends and relatives or not their cooperation, work schedules, laws, rules of the land in which we live, and on and on it goes. What all this means and what is almost universally accepted is that when we make a promise to do something for or with someone, it is understood by the promise maker and the promise recipient as well that we have every intent of complying with our promise. But, but, circumstances may arise which will force us to forfeit our decision. Now, unless we are pathological liars that no one trusts, people will generally cut us some slack if we have to break our promise for unseen, uncontrollable events. But having said that, having said that, none, none of the limitations which affect our promises, none of them apply to God. Not one. They do not apply to God because there are no unforeseen or uncontrollable events which arise to hamper God's promises. God is omniscient, which means he knows everything. And on top of that, he's omnipotent. He knows all and all there is to know about all. And no one or no thing, nothing, can thwart his intent. God himself says, Remember, remember the former things, those of, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Wow. 
From the east I summon a bird of prey, from a far off land a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that will I bring about. What I have promised, that I will do. Isaiah 46, verses 9 and following. That's just stunning to hear something like that. Again, Isaiah says, quoting God, I have revealed and saved and proclaimed I and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God, yes, and from ancient days I am he. No one can deliver you out of my hand when I act. Who can reverse it? Isaiah 43, verse 12 and 13. You know, brethren, this is a view of God that the world has no concept of. They think they can manipulate God. Their God is just a humanized, superhuman man. That's what the world's idea of God is. So that he is afflicted with all of the ills that men have and all of the limitations. But that's not the God of the Bible. The psalmist agrees. He says, I know that the Lord is great, that our Lord is greater than all gods. The Lord does whatever pleases in the harvest and on the earth and the seas and all their depths. Psalm 135, verse 5 and 6. Solomon reminds us, there is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. Proverbs 21, verse 30. So again, I say that the promises in the scripture, or any promise for that matter, is only as good as the person behind them. Secondly, God made a universal covenant with Abraham and Sarah. Say, what do you mean by a unilateral covenant? Well, if it's unilateral, it means it's not a partnership means it's all of grace with no admixture of works. As we read through the principal points of God's promise in our text, I want you to notice the one-sided nature of the contract. Genesis 12, verse 1. Go to the land that I will show you. Verse 2. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. Do you notice the definite assertions? I will, I will, I will, says God. No equivocation, no ifs, ands, or buts. No conditions, no provisos, no maybes, no possibilities, no I will do my part if you do your part. No, there's none of that in this. 
Abraham is being addressed as a recipient of God's blessings, but not as a partner. You know, in a partnership, each individual has his or her side of the agreement to which they must comply. And if they do not comply, the contract becomes null and void. Would you like your relationship with God to be based uh, even on 50% of your performance? Do you see yourself faithful to God and obedient to his laws 50% of the time? That'd be a 50-50, half a half. Wise man Solomon says, This only have I found. God made man upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29. In other words, sin ruined what God made upright. So much so that Isaiah tells us, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous acts, that is the good things that we do, all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away. Isaiah 64 verse 6. Everything we touch is tainted with sin. The wages of sin is death. Even the green leaves, symbolic of life and energy, they just shrivel up and they cover the landscape with brown shriveled deadness which the wind sweeps away. That's our good deeds. That's our legacy. And this is why God's promise made to Abraham and Sarah And their descendants must have and did have a one-sided covenant. That's why. In biblical times, such covenants were signed, sealed, delivered in blood. Such covenants were taken very seriously, certainly based on more than making a verbal promise. This is not evident in our text, Genesis 12, but it is evident in Genesis 15, at what has been called the ratification of the covenant. Verse 7 of that text says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and young pigeon. And Abraham brought all these to him. Cut them in two and strain, arrange them in halves opposite each other. So you get the idea here. Going to take a goat or a ram or whatever it is. It's going to be slaughtered, butchered. Half of it's going to be here. Half of it's going to be here. It's laying on the ground. It's half here, half there, leaving a pathway down the center between these sacrificed animals. The birds, however, it says he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down to the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. And as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep. No, no, no. And a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants 
will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and ill-treated 400 years. But I will punish that nation that they serve as slaves. That was Egypt. And afterwards, they will come out with great possessions. And while the sun, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking pot or fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between those pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to this great, to the great river, that is the Euphrates. Genesis 15, verses 7 and following. Now all of the ingredients are here as part of the ritual of ratifying Old Testament covenants. Animals were sacrificed. They're divided into pieces, left, right. They form a walkway or an aisleway between the two pieces. And there the parties involved in the transaction would walk together down covenant row between those slain animals, thereby signifying upon forfeiture of their own lives if they broke the covenant that was being made. The covenant makers vowed not to break the covenant being made that day. If this were a partnership-type covenant, we would expect God and Abram to walk covenant row together, right? Two, two guys. Each sealing their part of the bargain by vowing not to break covenant upon penalty of death. But this is no normal ratification. Where is Abram? Yes, he gathered the appropriate animals. Yes, he sacrificed them and divided them left and right to form a walkway. Yes, as best he knows, Abraham is ready to do his part in keeping the covenant, to do what God has required. But as we've already seen, men, because of sin, are incapable of knowing the future or controlling the future or of even 50% obedience to God's moral code. So if this covenant is to have any hope of fidelity and completion, it cannot depend on Abraham to do his part. His part will fail. Why? Because he will fail. That's why. Yeah. His good intentions will end as wishful thinking. His righteous act, his good deeds, will turn out to be filthy rags. The covenant will be stamped null and void. Null and void. You didn't live up to your side of the covenant. And Abram will shrivel and die and be carried into the abyss along with all sinners. All of this being true, I ask again, where is Abram at the ratification of the covenant? When Dee and I signed the mortgage 
to purchase our house at Mary Drive, we met in the realtor's office, and she asked buyer and seller alike, here was her question, is everyone here? Simple question, right? Is everyone here? Now, she could see us sitting there. I mean, that, wasn't, that wasn't the nature of the question. She wanted to know if all of the interested parties were present in the purchase of this house and the selling of the house. The sellers were signing away their rights to the property, and we, the buyers, were signing our obligation to purchase the property. It was a two-sided contract. So again, I ask the question, where is Abram in Genesis 15 with his contract with God? Verse 12 says, as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And we say, hey, that can't happen. Abraham, you need to wake up. You have a job to do. You have to walk covenant row. You have to ratify the covenant. Wake up, man. But Abram didn't wake up. He was in a deep sleep, a dreadful darkness. The ESV says a dreadful and great darkness. He was in a coma of sorts. His eyelids were so heavy, he, he couldn't open his eyes, let alone walk. And we think, this is terrible. This, this is absolutely terrible. At the very moment when God is willing to enter into agreement to bless Abraham and his descendants with all the I wills that we read in chapter 12, the man is conked out and sound asleep. But on second look, it isn't terrible at all. Given what we know about man and his failures, to keep their word, it's better if Abraham continues to sleep and to remain comatose. Oh, yeah, but then how will the promise come to be? How will the covenant be ratified, enforced, fulfilled? Who will see to it that all of its promises and conditions are kept? Can there even be a covenant without Abraham's participation? God, you have to do something. God answers verse 17 and following. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier or fire pan with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces, that is those animals that were cut. And on that day, what do we read? The Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Okay, yeah, I get that. Well, doesn't have. Where's Abraham? Doesn't he have to agree to this? Salvation, brethren, is not a partnership. It is not God doing His part and 
you doing yours. That was the Galatian error that Paul dealt with in the book of Galatia. No, it is all 100% of God's doing. Abraham was a righteous man, but not righteous enough to contribute his share to, to the covenant, keeping agreement with the holy, perfect God. Wow. He was a good man. But as Jesus explained, not good enough. Mark 10, verse 18, no one, says Jesus, no one is good except God alone. So salvation is what? It is what Jesus said in John 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit and that your fruit will last. And then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. John 15, verse 16. Salvation, brethren, or the covenant of grace is 100% of God's doing. It's his grace. So that's not what we deserve, is it? Better be careful when you say, I just want God to give me what I deserve. I never pray that prayer. If I get what I deserve, I'm going to hell. There's no one good but God. And all of our righteousness, all of our good deeds, says Isaiah, are as filthy rags. Well, how how's that going to commend me to God? I got filthy rags to good to submit to God I think they're good deeds but he says no they're putrefying putrefying rags well then how am I going to get saved God's going to have to do it he's going to have to be merciful to me that's what mercy is by the way he's going to have to be gracious to me I can't work it I can't earn it I have nothing with which to contribute. It's got to be all God or nothing at all. Say, well, don't I have to believe? Yes. Don't I have to repent? Yes. But it's not your faith and it's not your repentance. Both of these are spoken of in the scriptures being the gifts of God to whomever he pleases. We ought to be very humbled by the fact Salvation is 100% of God's grace. 100%. We're not entering into a partnership with God. It's all one-sided, just like Abraham here in his covenant. Abraham, what are you doing? Sleeping over there under the tree. Don't you know you have a job to do? You want this covenant to work for you and be a blessing to you? You need to get up. You need to walk covenant row with God. But he can't get up. He's just in comatose state. So God does all the work for him. That's grace, brethren. That's grace. Father, 
Thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. All the religions of the world, with the exception of Christianity, all of the religions of the world tout a religion and a salvation based upon works. Boil it all down. Get it down to the last nugget. And it still has to do with, well, God, you do your part and I'll do my part and together we'll get me saved. And God comes along and he says, you have nothing of value to contribute. Nothing that I need or want. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will pardon whom I pardon. Lord is of your grace. That's very humbling. The world says, that's not fair. But I don't want fair. I want mercy. I don't want justice. I want grace. And thankfully, in the cross, in the redemption that's in Christ's blood, mercy and grace is afforded to whomever you give it. Thank you. Bless these truths to our heart. And Abraham, way back in the Old Testament, is a pattern of how God deals with sinners and how he saves sinners. And you get the glory, not us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal number 271. Two seven one. It's a great hymn, standing on the promises of Christ. When God makes a promise, you can be sure it's going to be completed. So that's where you want to be standing, standing on his promises. Not the promises of men, but the promise of Christ. 271, let's stand together and sing.
One thing we should have learned from today's message is this, that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. He's not like us. We break our promises, as I said in the message today. There are a lot of externals that come our way that ruin our promises. The weather, bad health, loss of job, kind of ruined the trip to Bermuda, right? (laughs) The promises we made to the kids. A lot of things cause us to break our promises because we cannot control all of the variables in life. But all of that does not apply to God. If he promises, he's going to do it. And nobody can hold back his hand. So you need to take hope in that. We go through rough times as Christians, but God has made promises to us. It's a wonderful thing just to study the promises of God in the scripture. There's books on it, by the way. You can buy books that deal with just the promises of God, starting in Genesis, going right through. And it's very encouraging. And he's made so many promises that you couldn't, you couldn't cover it all. <clears throat> Take you a lifetime to study them. I trust you never doubt God. Whatever he said in his word, that's he's going to do. You can hold the word up to God and say, but Lord, you said, you said, da, 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 da. Well, if he said it, He's did it. He did it or he's going to do it. Either one. And we need to trust that. Father, we thank you for your word, that it is powerful, that it is sharp, like any two-edged sword, that it is true, solid, nothing can thwart your hand. We hold that up before you and we look at the promises of Scripture. And we think, we are the children of Abraham just like Abraham was a child of God. What you promised to Abraham, you promised to his children, to his descendants. And we are that group if we know you today. We serve the same God that Abraham served. And we're trusting the same way. The God who spoke, not an idol, Not our imagination, but the God who speaks. And we have a whole book of his speaking. Your prophets wrote it down for us so that we wouldn't forget it. Please take these promises and apply them to our heart. Give us peace of mind and peace of heart as we trust Jesus and what he has promised to do for his people. In Christ's name, amen.